As has already been mentioned, we come to our first Sunday of Advent, and we're looking at Luke chapter 21. It's not very popular or custom to, to be talking about Advent in such a distinct way, but Advent itself is a distinct time and a distinct season from Christmas. Like I mentioned, Christmas doesn't come until December 25th, sorry. Um, but we do experience in our culture what's called Christmas creep, right? Um, not a creepy Christmas, but Christmas creep, where slowly it begins to creep right after. I think I started seeing Christmas trees uh, around Halloween. So uh, fortunately they were not decorated in Halloween garb, but still we have this Christmas creep. We have this desire in our culture to kind of keep pushing it back. Well, there's a problem with that, and, and, it, and it alludes to part of our problem as human beings is we don't like to wait. We like to think about what presents we're going to be getting under the tree. We like to get everything knocked out. We like, if you're like my mother, sorry mom, but if you're like my mom, you're shopping on in January for Christmas in t- the, that following year. So uh, we don't really like to wait. We don't really like to wait, but Advent is distinct from Christmas. Advent forces us, and I hope you would hear it in the singing that we did in the songs. I'm really thankful for the songs that were selected, that, that there should be this silence and sometimes waiting and sometimes uneasiness. Because even in preaching, right, we, we don't like to have silence. But God does most of his work in that silence. And so we find ourselves in Advent... Looking back to remember, but that's only one aspect of Advent, to see that, oh, this is what the prophet said and this is how it was fulfilled. But we look forward, not just to Christmas 2018, but we look forward to the second Advent where Jesus will come. And as we just prayed that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that we look forward to. And and the silence causes us and should force us to be a little uncomfortable because God is wanting to do a work in each one of our lives during this Advent season to cause us to slow down, to cause us to engage with that hope and that pining for what is to come. So when I say wait, what kind of feelings kind of bubble up in your heart? Where do we wait usually? We wait in the DMV and we get a little irritated, don't we? We wait in the doctor's office. We wait on our spouse to get ready to go out on a date or we wait on our children to get in the car or we wait on, and you fill in the blank, what are you waiting on? And, and in that waiting, we get frustrated. I need to have already been in this path in my career. Well, you're waiting and you find yourself frustrated and You may even find yourself bored with what's going on right now. And so the problem, though, is that in waiting, in our culture, it seeps into our own hearts as Christians. Because the Christian life is one of waiting. Waiting on God to save us permanently and forever. And so we get a foretaste of that when we confess that Jesus is Lord, but we look for that consummation. We look for that final day when it will happen. And so we are awaiting people. We're awaiting people. Because waiting should not be boring. Waiting should be something of anticipation. Something that is saturated with hope, like this candle that we just lit. Waiting should be something that we are actually engaged in right now with thinking about. With looking around us and saying, 
God is doing something right now in light of what's to come. But it's not simply looking for what is to come, is it? It's looking around and looking at this chapter, reading and engaging in this chapter of our lives in light of the final chapter when God will make all things right. Waiting, biblically speaking, waiting is, a, is like the last few seconds of the, of the football game. Sorry, my Georgia fans, but it's like the last few seconds where the team is waiting and they're getting ready to win and you see the clock ticking down, you see the anticipation of the winning team. That's what Christian waiting is. It's an anticipation that we're about ready to win and one second and we've won. That's what waiting should be like. But it's not simply watching a game. It's not just simply watching it unfold. Biblically speaking, waiting is being engaged in the game, is being a player on the field. Have you ever uh, been the victim of a movie spoiler where you have uh, been told time and time again, hey, you need to watch this movie. It's incredible. And then all your friends who've already seen it, they say, hey, don't, don't tell them the end. But unwittingly, one of your friends tells you the end. You got your popcorn in your bowl and you're waiting. And then he calls you up. He says, hey, man, did you, can you believe that the Titanic sank? Oh, my goodness, that was incredible. And he ruins the whole movie because you didn't know that the Titanic sank. Or did it? Did it? Because a lot of times what can happen, and I usually don't do this, but if it's a really good movie, I'll watch a movie a second time. There's been a handful of movies that I watch a second time because the ending tells you everything you need to know about the players and the action that's going on. Right? Because in Titanic, what made it so fascinating, everyone knew that it was going to sink, but they said, wow, I can't remember the, the, the major actors' names, but the, the two major actors, you're watching their, their love and their relationship develop. You're like, oh, crud, is it really going to, oh, man, this is going to be bad. And, and you're waiting because you know it's coming, but the, it makes your senses hypersensitive. You're like, oh, oh wow. every conversation, every, every moment in that relationship, you start to put a pin in, and you're like, wow, that, that takes that much more significance because of what's coming, what we all know is coming. And so that's what Christian hope is supposed to do. You're supposed to be seeing the movie, and then you say, okay, as I engage with my friend or my family member or my coworker, it's in light of what's happening in the end. So our Christian waiting, our our biblical waiting, is not just supposed to be boring. It's supposed to be an engagement because we're not just watching the movie on the screen. We're actually players, actors in the story. And God is saying, will you please just engage with what I'm doing right now? And, and, And you know the ending. That should make you hypersensitive and hyper aware to what's going on. That this is not just you having an argument with someone. This is actual spiritual war that's going on. So biblically speaking, waiting should be not just anticipating the future, but it's to be engaged in right now. See, with the Advent season, we're not simply watching a movie, are we? We're supposed to be engaged in what God is doing in our lives. So Luke 21 is part of a larger story that begins back in Luke 19. And I'd encourage you to go back to Luke 19 and see how it starts to develop. So Jesus is, and I'll just give you a quick synopsis so we can get a little context for what's going on. Jesus is with his disciples at the temple that he just cleansed in chapter 19. He just cleaned it out. And so they're there in the temple and their senses are on hyper alert. They're like, what in the world is going on? This moment 
that Jesus cleans everything out, starts castigating all the religious leaders, you can bet their senses are, are, are alert. And so they're looking around and they're saying, what, what's happening? What, what is Jesus doing? So they're listening really intently. Their eyes are open, their hearts are engaged in what Jesus is saying. And we read at the end of chapter 19, verse 47, And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they didn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on Jesus' words. That's very key for how chapter 20 and then chapter 21. That theme of destruction is the very foundation in which Luke is building from. Okay, So they were seeking to destroy Jesus. But Jesus has a different destruction in mind. So deeper lines, starting in chapter 19 of Luke, deeper lines are being drawn between Jesus, true faith in his Messiah, and all the religious leaders. And every conversation they have, that that trench gets deeper and deeper between. There's the religious leaders who have it all together, who understand how God works. And here's Jesus who is an upstart and shaking up the entire world as, as Acts talks about the disciples. So Jesus' authority, right, is shown to be from God at the beginning of chapter 20. Jesus tells the leaders that those who reject the cornerstone of the temple, who is him, they're going to be crushed under the weight of that cornerstone. It's not just Jesus picking up some kind of cool image. He's saying, you're putting your faith in this temple, but the cornerstone, the very thing in which this temple was built, is right here in your midst. And if you reject this cornerstone, you'll be crushed by it. And then the one to come at the end of chapter 21, the one to come that we just read in Jeremiah 33, that the one to come is going to be coming out of the stump of Jesse, this righteous branch. And Jesus is trying to show them all of this expectation that you had is right here. The kingdom of God has come upon you, he says in chapter 17 of Luke. He says, the kingdom of God is here in your midst. But see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is setting them up for a big whammy. You see, they put their confidence in the temple. They put their confidence in having their stuff together. They put their confidence in everything but God. They have secured their salvation because of their obedience instead of leaning on God who is their salvation. They had got God understood. And they had put God in a box and they tied him up with a bow and they didn't let him out of that box that they put him in. That's what religion does, and if we're not careful, that's what we do. God needs to do this because I did this. That's not ever how God works, ultimately, is it? We don't get what we deserve because of a Savior who outside of us comes and pulls us out. You see, they had total disregard for how God had orchestrated their lives. They had a horrible memory because they forgot that God had destroyed a temple already and sent Israel into exile before several generations before them. They had forgotten that. They had forgotten that God is not, is not some kind of servant to them and their religion. 
But that he is just as well to destroy a temple if that's what's going to be an idol in his people's lives. And, and he's happy to send people into exile so that they will throw themselves on the mercy of God. And so that's what happened in, in the Babylonian exile, isn't it? That the temple was destroyed because they had, in Jeremiah 7, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and had become an idol in their lives. Their understanding of how God works became an idol for them. And then God said, I will have no other idols before me, even the temple. And then we come to chapter 21. And I had Jesse print the whole thing out so you can kind of see how this is laid out. Because I, I don't have time, obviously, to go through the whole chapter. And we're just going to be focusing on the last section there. But we see in verse 5, while some were speaking of the temple... How it was adorned with noble, noble stones and offerings. Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? You see, Jesus then in the next several verses from, from verse 8 all the way to verse 24 talks about the destruction of this beautiful temple. This temple that they had put their faith in. And he says, it will be destroyed. And then the disciples are obviously worried, as any one of us would be, if we were to find out the thing that we put our confidence in is taken away. So they're worried. The thing that they most valued in their faith was going to be destroyed. And so Jesus starts with the temple. And he says, this temple will be destroyed. And when this temple is destroyed, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And when this, this Jerusalem, this city is destroyed, look for the destruction that will come upon all flesh everywhere on earth. And if this is true, you can bet this is true, and you can bet that this will be true. And that's what Jesus is trying to show them. This, this destruction of this temple is but a foretaste of the future destruction of all evil. So let's look at verses 25 to 28. <clears throat> verses 25 to 28. Jesus said this, And there will be signs... In the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus is coming. If you're taking notes, point one. Jesus is coming will not be a secret. But it will be sudden. It will not be secret, but it will be sudden. You see, I often worried sometimes when I was a kid. I was like, maybe, uh, maybe Jesus will show up and I won't know that he's showing up. Well, no, Jesus is saying here, I promise you, you will know... <laughs> You will know it won't be in Waco, Texas with David Koresh. It won't be some, some upstart small town like Bethlehem again. It will be from the clouds. And no one will have any question that this is Jesus. So if you're worried like, man, I really hope I don't miss, miss it. 
No, Jesus is saying, it will be clear, but it will be sudden. It's not going to be a secret. It will be sudden. Do you remember in uh, 2004, there was a horrible tsunami? You remember that? In Thailand, that killed more than 5,000 people and injured 8,000 more people. Can you imagine if they had just known a little bit earlier? They had just known just a little bit sooner that the tsunami was coming. They could have evacuated, or at least a few thousand could have been saved. Many could have avoided their own deaths if they just had known. We oftentimes, in our context, we joke a lot about hurricanes because we hear about hurricanes about 10 days before they hit. And then everybody's in a clamor. But have you ever considered that people's lives are being saved even in the midst of that? What a blessing we have to know that, that oh, it's coming. So, let's yeah, it's going to be an inconvenience. Sorry, you get to save your life. And so there's always this context of, you know, hurricanes are coming, I'm not going to move. And, that, and Jesus is, is, is kind enough to tell all of us, and that we are to proclaim to the world all around us. Jesus is kind enough to say, there is a tsunami coming. There is a hurricane coming. There is a, there is a destruction that no man and no woman will ever be able to conceive in their own minds right now. He, he alludes to it back in, in our own chapter here to Noah. Such will it be in the days of Noah. They were, they were having a good time. But Noah was building that ark. And in building that was showing people, you need to get ready. You need to get your hearts ready. You need to prepare for what's happening. And Jesus is kind enough to say, there is a bigger destruction coming. So batten down your hatches. Evacuate. Find solace in the only rock that can bring you salvation. Namely, Jesus. And all those who take Jesus' words and say, I don't believe it. There will be great sorrow and great mourning. Those that you love that have not bowed their knee to Jesus are at great risk of their lives. And if we are not careful, and if we begin to presume as the religious leaders presumed upon how God works, and we too will find ourselves at the wrong end of the stick. And so the question then becomes, when? When is this going to happen? They already asked it. The disciples already asked this before, right? They said, when are, when, how will we know? How will we know when this is going to happen, Jesus? Because we all know about the doomsday prophets, right, who, are, who take all their charts out and they have a, a huge you know, PowerPoint presentation, um, flannel board, flannel graph or whatever, to be able to show, here it is. You remember that? That, that Hitler was Antichrist, so Jesus is coming in 1949. Uh, then you got Saddam Hussein. Uh, so, so Jesus is coming back right now because obviously Saddam Hussein is this great, horrible beast. And then you see it with Kim Jong-il and then his son Kim Jong-un. You see, that's dangerous. This trying to, to just kind of figure it all out is dangerous for our souls. Because this prognosticating has gone on since the time of Caligula and Nero in the Roman Empire. It's gone on and on and on. The point that Jesus is trying to make is don't try to read the tea leaves... Don't try to figure it out 
by doing some kind of numerology. Don't try to figure it out by reading the tea leaves. Look at the fig tree. Look at the fig leaf. Something much more sure. Be on your guard is what Jesus is saying. Don't try to think that this new author is going to get it right and that Jesus is coming in December 25th, 2018. You need to be wary of something like that. Because Jesus is saying something a lot more sure than prognosticating. Be on your guard is what he's saying. Look at his next few verses in the next paragraph in verses 29 to 32. He says, and Jesus told them a parable. This is to illustrate what he just said. Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, the things that he just spoke about in the previous paragraph, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Second point. Jesus' coming is more sure than the sun rising. We take that for granted, don't we? We know, we presume that the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Jesus is saying that my words, my declaration here is more sure than the sun because the sun can and will be shaken. But my words will stand forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. They're going to surely happen. His words, as soon as he speaks them, you know that they will happen. So who is this generation that he's speaking of? Who is this generation? Well, I believe that it has two meanings on purpose. It has two meanings. First, Jerusalem will be destroyed before their very eyes of the hearers that, that are listening to Jesus speaking right now. He's talking about this generation. It is the original hearers of what Jesus is saying. And their seeing of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 is meant to be as surety or a secure foundation on which they can know that, hey, hey guys, you remember Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed in AD 70? Do you remember that? He said that before it happened. Do you remember that? He must be telling the truth, that he's coming back and that there's going to be destruction, worldwide destruction. So we can bank on the fact, because of what happened here, this is the original hearer speaking, because of what happened here in AD 7, we can... We can Bank on the fact that Jesus is coming back and that there will be destruction that we have never seen before in our lives. You see, one of the problems with reading Scripture for us a lot of times can be that we separate ourselves from the original hearers. So we come to the text and we're like, yes, there, yep, that, that, it must be talking about that generation right there. This is for them and that generation. While that's true, that's true at one layer. It's not simply the case, is it? That's not how Scripture really works. So we see it right here on the page that this is for this generation, but it's not simply for this generation. It's like one layer of a seven-layer cake. Right? There, you, you don't, in a seven-layer cake, you have multiple layers, and so that's the way we should be reading Scripture, that there are layers upon layers of deliciousness. Right? 
And we know, we know this because Luke, like the Old Testament, has written these words for us. They've been written down on parchment for future generations. And we, we know this also. We just heard, what, two weeks ago from Hebrews 11? What does he say? The redemption that was waited for in the people of the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. These things happened so that they would not be saved or redeemed apart from us, is what he says. You can go back there. Uh, Hebrews 11.40 is where he says that, that. That our salvation is tied up into the salvation that God talked about in the Old Testament and their salvation is tied up into our salvation so that we are interdependent upon each other. And so secondly, this generation, in light of all that, this generation also means that every succeeding generation, every succeeding generation of that seven-layer cake are called to be alert and awake my brothers and sisters, Jesus will return just as surely as wars are happening. And you see, this is what the prophet Habakkuk said too. Remember, Habakkuk was, was just, Lord, I can't believe this is, what, what's going on? What, what's happening? This is right before the Babylonians came and invaded and destroyed the temple. Okay, the first temple. So, so Habakkuk is wrestling, Lord, I don't understand. How, how is it possible that a wicked people are going to come destroy your chosen people? Why, why are they going to send us into exile? How is that right? I don't, I don't get it. I don't like it. And the Lord answered Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, write the vision down. Make it plain on tablets. Write it out. Because why? So that he may run who reads it. He may find solace and salvation when he reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. The Babylonians are coming. It's awaiting its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It must have surely seemed like it was delaying for Habakkuk. Just as it seems delaying that Jesus is coming for us. But that's according to our measure of time. You and I get impatient at the grocery store. God. God who has orchestrated history. Every sand of time that drips is not apart from His will. Every sparrow that falls is not apart from His will. And so how can we ever indict God for saying, how? why are you so long in coming? He's saying, if it seems slow in coming, wait for it. I said I was coming. I said the Babylonians were coming. And I said that destruction over here was coming. Wait for it. It's not delayed. It's not delayed. Every spring, the fig tree in my backyard gets little buds on it. Little seeds on, on our maple tree, or little buds come out on our maple tree, and there's this anticipation. And I bank on it every year. Maybe this year I'll get some figs from it. See, that's what Jesus is saying. Don't read the tea leaves. Look at the fig tree, and just as sure as the fig tree blossoms, so also my word will flourish. It will blossom. Bank on it. 
As you look on around the world and see on the news all of the heinous acts, all of the evil that's going on, all the wars and the rumors of war that are happening, just as surely as you see these things taking place, Jesus is saying, right? Because they keep happening. Like rumors of war, war, earth is in distress, nations in perplexity. Jesus is saying, whenever you see that happening, know that I'm coming. And so from the time that he was, was ascended into heaven, this has been happening. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, when you watch the news, when you hear about that happening, know that it's coming. Know that it's coming. So if you're left wondering, I wonder if that war over there means that Jesus is coming back. Or I wonder if that, that skirmish over here means that Jesus is coming back. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Just as surely as you see destruction right now, that's a foretaste of the destruction that is to come. And so we should tremble. And we should be about the business of talking to others, of telling others, of telling them to wait and expect that Jesus' word is true. Just as surely as the evening news will report something horrible, you can be sure that Jesus' word will come true. But there's a problem, isn't there? It seems like it was so long ago, so people have explained it away. People have said, well, the disciples really didn't have it together, they didn't understand uh, maybe the Bible's wrong. Or maybe Jesus is wrong. Yeah, there are people that, that kind of take it down that trail because our impatience causes us to indict God. Uh, the Bible must be wrong. The disciples must be fooled. Jesus, man, he didn't really know what he's talking about. That, that's this extent to which we'll go to conform Scripture to what I believe, to what I know. So what are we supposed to do about this? This waiting, this impatience that we struggle with. What are we supposed to do about it? This is our last point, point three. Verses uh, 34 to 36. Jesus says, But watch yourselves. In light of all this, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What are we to do with this? Jesus says, therefore, therefore, because my word will stand just as surely as the Son, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Look at yourself. Consider your life. Stand before yourself in the mirror. Look yourself in the face and say, what are you doing? You of little faith. How are you spending your hours and your minutes and your seconds of every single day? Because destruction is coming and your end is drawing near. Quit dilly-dallying and playing games like, like Jesus is not coming back. Jesus says, watch yourself. Watch your thoughts. Watch your money. Watch your time. Spend time under God's microscope and let Him do the work by His Spirit to say, you've got some problems here. You've got some, some things that you need to lay down and put your faith in Jesus anew. Stop trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but lay your life down and in laying down your life, you will find life. Stop striving and struggling. And how do you do that? By resting in Jesus. 
Did you notice why you are to do this? Why you are to watch your life? Did you notice it? It can can sneak up on you. Unless your hearts are weighed down. Not with fear. Not with boredom. You see, after... After all, hearing about these wars and rumors of wars and destruction that's coming, it might cause you and me to grow anxious. We might think, oh man, I am scared to death. And we're trembling. We're like, oh man, I don't want to see this happen. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He doesn't say, watch yourself so that you aren't, aren't fearful or aren't anxious about the future. What does he say? Unless your hearts are weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. What an unexpected thing to get weighted down by. Dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. But it's not unusual, is it? It's really not that unusual because the disciples were waiting for Jesus to usher in the victory of God. And here they were in the garden while Jesus is over there praying. And he was laboring. He was laboring in prayer, and they're probably thinking to themselves, what in the world is going on? Why are we not taking up arms? Why are we not grabbing our swords and going to destroy Rome? Because isn't he the Messiah? Isn't that the way God God said he was going to work? So where else is this language of prayer and staying awake used in Luke's gospel? Whenever I go to a text, I always try to find where is this also talked about in this book. So Luke talks about it. Luke talks about it on the night that Jesus was betrayed in the garden. After returning from praying by himself, we hear this in Luke chapter 22. Jesus came to the disciples and found them. What were they doing? Sleeping for sorrow. Sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. But you may not enter into temptation. There's a war going on around you. Get up and pray. So you don't give in to the cares of this life, into dissipation, into drunkenness. Sleeping for sorrow. What can happen in our lives is that we can become weighted down with sorrow. That life is not what we think it should be. We can become sorrowful to the point of despair. Are you ever given to that? I know I am. Maybe it's just not true. Maybe this is is just a fancy tale. What happens when we get disparaged in life? What happens to our bodies with sadness? Our heads get lowered without even thinking about it. Our eyes start closing and we start closing in on ourselves. Without intention, we become consumed. We become consumed. Because if you ask any anyone struggling with addiction to anything, but particularly alcohol, since we're talking about dissipation and drunkenness, they, they didn't start by saying, I'm going to be an alcoholic. That's my goal in life. No. It crept up on them. It started out as a sleep aid. Then it became something they had for lunch to try to cope with the stress at work. And then it became uh, something that they ate with their Cheerios in the morning. And it slowly began to take them over. And that's the image that that we need to be getting from Jesus' words. Don't get weighed down by sadness, by thinking it's not true. You see, we can become consumed with our own cares and our own worries and with ourselves. 
We can become drunk with our own fantasies of how the world should be and the way that God should be doing this or that. And slowly we begin to lower our heads and think that this is all about me. One commentator wrote this, Too often attention to the return of Jesus is selfishly oriented. Hey, what what will my fate be? Rather, it's necessary to consider the plan of salvation which God is pursuing through the whole world. How ironic that the Christian church is constantly reproached for concentrating all its interest on the selfish happiness of the world, of the individual in the world beyond. The self-centered view of the end is always too nearsighted ever to see what God is really doing in the world. That's what can happen, is we can begin to close in and, and think that life is really about you and your struggles. And Jesus says, look up, straighten up, get up, wake up. There's a world out here that you were intended to be engaged in. Not just to watch it from the sideline. Not, not just to think that it's a cool movie that's unfolding before you. And man, I'm glad I got my ticket. But it is a, a movie in which you and I are the actors. In which we are called to stand up and pray. See, when I was a little boy at my grandma's house. We went there for a Christmas dinner. I was often told when I was at the table to sit up. Sit up straight. Don't slouch. Why? To get ready to eat something really good. To get ready to pass the peas. To be alert. To know what's happening here. You remember our reading in 1 Thessalonians 3? How are we to be established in our faith? You remember that? You can go there. It says in, in 1 Thessalonians 3. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. So that you may establish your hearts. That's how our hearts are established, is by loving one another. Not just coming and checking in, checking out. Not just going to community group because you're supposed to. Not just calling somebody or texting somebody because you have to. But being engaged in what's happening right now, this Sunday morning. Advent is here. The kingdom of God is in our midst, if we'll see it. So brothers and sisters... May we not slouch. May we sit up straight. Open our eyes. Be awake. Because this opportunity, this life, this day is ripe with God's glory if you'll see it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for your grace. A grace that calls us to wake up, to be alert, and to pray, to love one another, even when it's difficult, and especially when it's difficult. Father, we pray that you would imbue us with your spirit in such a way that we will love each other. Be engaged at this ripe opportunity when you are present with us, if we will see it, if we'll hear it. If we'll engage with this chapter right now in light of the final chapter. Father, we pray that you would help your church, Christ the Redeemer. To be a church that is seriously joyful about their faith. We pray this in the matchless name of our King, Jesus.
Amen.